to start. Looks like you guys cleaned out the food, especially the dessert. People cheating on your diet, I'm watching you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> I love when we don't have any leftover food. That means that everybody got well fed, and that's what we want here is for you to get a good meal every week and um, some spiritual nourishment as well. And so we are in Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 13 began the last of the judges, which is Samson, the ultimate judge par excellence. And by par excellence, I mean really terrible example. And that's the pattern in the book of Judges, has been a downward spiral. Each judge has been successively worse than the previous judge. And, but also, at the same time, paradoxically, God has not given up on Israel, even though they've become completely uh, syncretistic and Canaanite. Not even syncretistic. I take that back. Because syncretistic means they still worship God, Yahweh and they worship other gods. But in chapter 12, we saw that they don't even worship Yahweh anymore. They only worship the other gods. And so it's a time of national apostasy. And God has sent them judges uh, or deliverers to deliver them from various situations. But over the course of the book, those judges have been successively less um, uh, successful in their abilities and in their deliverance. And they've been, even, even the Spirit of God, when it, when it works in certain judges, like at the beginning of the book, the Spirit of God empowers judges to do pretty great things or successful things. And then when you get to Jephthah and then Samson, when the Spirit of God is going to come on the judge, the judge is actually going to do pretty dumb things or pretty uh, counterproductive things in a lot of ways. So like Jephthah, the Spirit of God came on him, he delivered Israel, won the battle, but then he made that vow or sacrificed his daughter. And so you see that the Spirit of God isn't this thing that overrides a bad person and makes them good. It's an empowering thing that gives someone the power, the ability to do something, to accomplish a task that they normally wouldn't be able to accomplish in their own strength. But whether they use it for good or evil remains to be seen, and it depends on the person who is being acted upon. Uh, and so in the judges, if you trace that, trace the Spirit of God's activity on the judges, you see it getting progressively less and less in terms of national deliverance. And that's going to be the, the, the ultimate example of that's going to be Samson, because he's the only judge that the Spirit of God is going to visit more than once. All the other judges, if the Spirit of God comes upon them, it's only for a one-time thing, and then they're done. But with Samson, we're going to see it happen a couple of times. But each time, there's going to be very little that actually is accomplished in terms of national deliverance. In fact, sometimes it will make it worse for God's people. And so Samson, we saw last chapter, he was, his birth was prophesied to a, a barren uh, mother. And the angel of the Lord came and, and appeared again. So the, the expectations for Samson are major because he is uh, basically like the patriarchs. And uh, his story echoes the patriarchs in so many ways. But we also said that, and to keep a lookout, his life echoes Israel in so many ways. His life is like a microcosm of Israel, called before his birth, appointed to great things, anointed with God's presence, given strength that he shouldn't have on his own. All of this stuff describes Israel. And yet, like Israel, Samson is going to choose to lust after and go after foreign wives instead of uh, uh, focusing on what God has called him to do. And just like Israel. 
And, and that's why adultery is one of the things that God uses to describe Israel's spiritual state over and over in the prophets. Is basically saying, you're cheating on me with these foreign gods. These foreign gods are like marrying illicit wives. And so that's one of the dominant metaphors for prophets like Hosea and Ezekiel uh, and Jeremiah. So Samson, just keep that in mind as, you're, as we're wrestling with Samson. Is he a hero? Is he not a hero? Well, is Israel heroic or not heroic? The answer is depends on what they're doing and when they're doing it and what are the circumstances. So Samson's very much a tragic figure like Israel. And he comes at the end of the book of Judges probably for that reason. Um, so we start chapter 14. This is after he was, he was born at the end of the last chapter. In chapter 14... Samson went down to Timnah, that's a Philistine city not far away. He lives on a border town between Judah, Dan, and Philistine territory. Samson went down to Timnah and there saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. This is not out of the ordinary. That's what you do in the ancient world. You tell your parents to arrange the marriage. And even today in cultures around the world, arranged marriage, that's how it works. You meet the interested in somebody, you have your family, talk to their family, and if it's mutually beneficial, families come together, that's a marriage. We are the anomaly in most of the world, uh, the way we do it, the whole dating thing, courtship and all that stuff. It's, it's very strange, especially like to my Indian friends. They're like, why, why do y'all do it that way? It's just so weird. And we, of course, say the same thing about letting your parents choose who you're going to spend your life with. But <clears throat> that's how they did it then. That's how they do it in a lot of places in the world, and that's perfectly normal. The problem is he goes and does so with a Philistine woman. Why is that important? Because the Philistines are the occupying overlords of the time. The Philistines are controlling and tormenting and persecuting Israel. They're the enemy. And, but, but by this point, Israel's just come to accept that, or at least the people in the tribe of Dan have just come to accept that. And so at the beginning of Judges, you saw people like Othniel and people like Shamgar and Deborah and Barak, you know, these people that would fight against and throw off the yoke of oppressors and not worship their gods. Even Gideon would tear down uh, the pagan god statues. By the time we get to Samson, the people are just like, eh, it's how it is. Eh, you know, they're in control. And so they're starting to assimilate and acquiesce, and, and, and it's becoming normal, this oppression at the hands of people like the Philistines. And so verse 3, his father and his mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? So his parents are like, no, 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 this isn't right. You shouldn't. Now, we've seen in Scripture all the way up until now, and this should go without saying, Scripture never prohibits interracial marriage. It never prohibits marriage across ethnic lines. Moses had a Cushite wife. You know, his sister complained, and God was like, oh, you want a white lady? All right, I'll make you a white lady. And gave her leprosy and, and that whole thing in, in the, uh, that we saw in this account. But... Scripture never prohibits interracial marriage, but it always prohibits interfaith marriage. And that's the thing. That's why the whole notion of an uncircumcised Philistine, that's, that's shorthand for, for a pagan wife. So God's got no problem with foreigners coming into Israel, marrying into Israel, as long as they enter into the covenant people. In fact, you can get a whole book of the Bible named after one who did that. Ruth, she was a Moabite. She came into the covenant people. She took God as her God. And, and she, so God doesn't have a problem with that. It's the interfaith thing that he has a problem with. But Samson doesn't have a problem with it. 
His parents do. His parents know who he is, who his destiny is, what God called him to be, that he's supposed to be a Nazarite. We get the idea that his parents are like, this isn't right. You should be the deliverer of Israel, and there are people in Israel that you could marry. And, but Samson says, uh, verse 6, but Samson said to his father, get her for me. And then the NIV, the NIV kind of botches this chapter in a lot of places, and this is one example. The NIV says, get her for me. She's the right one for me. That's not what Samson said. Sorry, NIV users. When I use the NIV, it's a fine translation, but doesn't always get it right. And in this one, it misses a huge point. He says, literally, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. She is right or upright, the word yashar. She is right in my eyes. That's what he says, not she's the right one for me. It's not a love connection. It's a lust connection. He saw her. And he said, she's fine. I want her. Doesn't care about her faith, doesn't care about her family, doesn't care about any of that stuff. I see, I want, that's what's right in my eyes. The culmination of the book of Judges is going to end with the declaration that these are the darkest days in Israel's history. Why? Because everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's this exact same phrase. So Samson already is, is echoing Israel as a whole once again by doing what is right in his eyes. And of course, what's the irony with that? He's gonna lose his eyes over a woman from Philistia who leads him astray, or, or actually betrays him. So there's a lot of irony and literary craftsmanship going on in this that gets glossed over if you just say she's the right one. No, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's making a statement and it is meant to be read like the rest of what Israel's been doing in this whole book uh, now, we get a parenthetical note from the narrator at this point. It says, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. So now we get a narrator saying, unbeknownst to his parents, God's already got all this planned out. And, and Samson's base desire and his sinful desire is God's already figured that into the equation and is going to use this. To, to basically bring about this antagonism between the Philistines and the Israelites. And so some people immediately go, wait a minute, that means that God's the one that's orchestrating this evil and God's doing bad. That's part of the, the Hebrew theology uh, of the Old Testament is, yeah, God orchestrates stuff and he, he is sovereign over everything, including the evil done by people. So for instance, God specifically tells the prophets, hey, I'm going to bring the Babylonians against you. And they're going to destroy you because you've abandoned my covenant. So God tells Israel, I'm the one behind. When, when Habakkuk finds out that Babylon's going to overrun Israel, he's like, Lord, I, I can't believe this. I don't, this is, this is terrifying. This is, how can you do this? And he doesn't, God never answers his question. Uh, he's left to ask that question because God's like, no, I'm sovereign even over the things that people do. But when, God, when Babylon does come and destroy Israel, God then judges Babylon. And they receive judgment. They receive punishment. Why? Because they weren't doing it out of some altruistic purpose. They were doing it out of their own conquering empire desires. And so God judges them for their actions as well. So he uses evil, but still judges evil. Judas betrayed Jesus. We find out, lo and behold, God had that all in mind all along, that that would happen. And he would redeem that even for good. And the crucifixion becomes the greatest thing in the history of the world. That's why we call it Good Friday, not Bad Friday. However, that doesn't mean Judas was a good guy. 
It doesn't mean God approved of Judas doing what he did. It means that God was sovereign over Judas doing what he did. And so that is then where people get into discussions of free will and to what degree are we responsible. If we can't help but do it, does that mean that we are off the hook? No, do we actually participating in it? There's all these discussions, but the text just allows and says, look, at the end of the day, nothing happens without God having taken it into account. And he, through Samson's fallen sinful actions, is going to accomplish some things despite Samson's lustfulness and his, his um, disobedience and all of the things that he's going to go on to do that are against what God wants. So it's a note of God's sovereignty and how you balance that with your own understanding of God is up to you. Different theologians have different answers and if you're a Calvinist, you'll look at it one way. If you're Arminian, you'll look at it another way. And those are discussions that you can have. But in the text itself, it's just putting it out there that all of this whole Samson saga with the Philistines is within the purview of God's control. And he's got this already. And he, just like later, he's going to do with the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all kinds of stuff. So God operates at, at, at a much more sovereign level than even people can understand. And that's what he's saying here. Even Samson's parents can't understand how this can be in any way part of God's plan. So verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, the vineyards, where are Nazarites not supposed to be? Anywhere near a vineyard. <laughs> Here's another key of what's going on in this chapter. His parents were to be, his mom was to be a Nazarite. He was a Nazarite when he was born. You shall not touch or consume anything that grows on the vine. And yet Samson, when they get to Timnah, where are they approaching? The vineyards. So right here, we get another key of Samson either not caring, not paying attention, or not concerned with his Nazarite vow. And so a young lion comes roaring out. Uh, yeah, verse 5. Verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. It rushed upon him, literally is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, not came upon him. So that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. It's like when you're butchering a young goat, a, 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 a small animal, and you want to butcher it and separate the flanks and the, everything. You know, you take the hind legs after you killed it and gutted it and just like a wishbone, like a turkey. So it's saying basically that's what he was able to do with this lion. It was the epitome of strength and ferocity in the ancient world. So he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Maybe because he did it in a vineyard. We don't know. But he kept it secret. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And it says, and he liked her. Again, bad translation. It's, he went down and talked with the woman. She was right in Samson's eyes. That's what it says in Hebrew. Um, so, has this encounter with the lion? Was the lion like Balaam's donkey? Maybe it was a warning. Maybe the lion was like God's deterrent. And Samson ignored it and went on. We don't know. We just know that that's what happened. And he didn't tell his parents about it. <clears throat> Verse 8, sometime later, when he went back to marry her. So they went down. They made the arrangements with the family. And then they went home. Then when they came back to actually have the marriage, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. Uh, what else are the Nazarites not supposed to come near or touch? Dead things. 
carcasses. These are specifically things that Nazarites are told do not touch or have anything to do with. So twice now, on this jaunt down to marry a foreign woman, Samson has neglected, at best, his Nazarite vow. So he saw the lion's carcass, and in it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. So now, third thing you're supposed to do, eat defiled food. <laughs> honey that comes out of the corpse of a th an animal is absolutely defiled food. So he's broken three times at least. He's gone against his Nazarite vow. Worse, when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. Echoes of Eve and Adam in the garden. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. So the ones who had consecrated him are the ones he defiles. Not honoring his mother and his father. Another thing that Samson does that they're not supposed to. Now, verse 10, now his father went down to see the woman. And Samson made a feast there as was customary for the bridegrooms. What this literally says, again, this chapter, they take some leeway. So it literally says, his father went down to, to see the woman or to make sure, make arrangements for the marriage. And Samson made a uh, mishtah. And uh, a mishtah is the word, it, it comes from the word to drink. And it's the Hebrew verb for drink. It's a drinking party. It's not a feast. There's a word for feast. This isn't it. This is a drinking, this is a keg party. This is a bachelor party. This is a drinking party. That's literally what it is. Every commentary you look at will tell you this. And that's a huge thing because what are Nazarites not supposed to do? Drink anything fermented. Again, Samson, no regard for his who he is. No regard for his calling, for his what God's done for him. He throws a drinking party. A Nazarite does this. Samson made a feast, drinking party there, as was customary for the young men, is literally the young warriors, not the bridegrooms, but the young warriors of the Philistines. It's a Philistine custom to do this, not an Israelite custom. He's marrying a Philistine woman in a Philistine town and throws a Philistine drinking party. Probably would have been, or most likely, there would have been elements of paganism in it because the god of the Philistines that we're going to meet later is Dagon. He's the god of grain. Grain is what you use to make certain types of strong alcohol. So all of this, Samson is just thoroughly paganized at this point. <clears throat> then it says, when they saw him, they took 30 companions, and they were with him. So when, they, when Samson comes down, the Philistines, the young men, they took 30, basically, bodyguards. These weren't like, hey, buddy, here, here's, here are your groomsmen. This was like... We need to surround this guy. We need to keep an eye on this guy. He's a foreigner. He's marrying one of our women. So they put 30 guys around him. These aren't like buddies. These are kind of a hostile or at best just to keep an eye on him um, during the seven days of feasting. And for good reason. Now Samson's going to antagonize him. Verse 12. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 festal garments. Sets of clothes is what the NIV says. But it's talking about fine like Sunday best. Like I'm going to give you 30 Versace suits or something like that. Um, if you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 festal garments. So he makes a bet. Hey, I'm going to tell you a riddle. You can answer it. I'll give you, and it's, it's, I mean, it's a lot. 30 garments is a lot. These are not cheap. You don't go to Walmart and get a three pack of Hanes t-shirts and throw that at them. This is a big investment. This is major. 
This will impoverish a small village to provide this many things, <clears throat> which is what's going to be their complaint. And so he said, they said, tell us your riddle. Let's hear it. And he replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Now that happens to rhyme in English. It doesn't rhyme at all in Hebrew. It's based on like consonants and, and it's a... Uh, the rhythm, but it's one of the rare, weird things where a Hebrew poem actually rhymes in English, but doesn't at all in Hebrew. And it's a strange riddle. There were cases in the ancient world of people asking riddles that were hard to guess, that were very obscure, based on something that they'd seen. And so this this is this is weird to us. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but there's precedent for it in the ancient world. Just culturally, it's just a very weird thing to do. But asking and guessing riddles was a big thing in the ancient Near East, and we have examples of riddles like this from other surrounding cultures. And so they apparently they take him up on it, and he gives them this riddle, and they, they don't know what he's talking about. So for three days, they could not give an answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, so they go to his wife now, one of their own, and they say, hey, entice your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. This is the third time we've seen that burning of your household to death. Remember the Jephthah cycle? What they threatened to do to Jephthah, the Benjaminites threatened to do that to him, and what he did to his own daughter. And so this is, again, part of the cultural milieu of how you threaten somebody. Uh, one of the ways is we're going to burn you to death. We're going to burn your house down, you and your family. So right now we see that the Philistines are not the good guys in this story. Just because Samson's not the good guy doesn't mean the Philistines are either. Some stories don't have a good guy. And that's definitely the case in the Samson saga. So we see the barbarity of these Philistines and the ruthlessness that they're going to kill an innocent family if they don't give, if she doesn't help them get the answer to this riddle. Rather than pay 30 garments, these 30 people are like, we're going to kill you. So that shows you the depth of the depravity and, and evil that, that Israel's facing. So they, they say, you know, tell us or we'll burn, get him to tell us or we'll burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? So again, they're worried about providing these uh, garments. Then Samson's wife threw herself onto him, sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. Samson said, I haven't even explained it to my father or my mother. Why should I explain it to you? And she cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. So now, for the first time, Samson is letting his desire for a woman lead him to divulge something that he absolutely should not divulge. This is going to come back later. Only next time, he's going to be the one that pays for it. Right now, he doesn't. <clears throat> so uh, she, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? So they answer his riddle in turn with uh, rhetorical questions. And they get it right. They've said it's a lion and it's honey, and you know, they shouldn't know this. He's the only person that should have known the answer to this riddle. Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. So he answers with another little poem that's pretty derogatory. He basically calls his wife a cow. And if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, in other words, if you hadn't used my livestock, that's what he's saying. It's very derogatory towards his wife, who has already nagged him and gotten this out of him. So uh, he's angry, he's mad. And so verse 19, then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, 
He went down to Ashkelon, which is in Gaza, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their festal garments to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to the friend who attended him at the wedding. So what Samson gets now from this is the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, but instead of delivering Israel from the Philistines, he just goes and kills 30 random people to pay back this bet that he lost. To, to pay a gambling debt, basically. He murders 30 people to pay a gambling debt. And then goes away. Leaves his wife. Leaves his, I mean, they're married. They, that, that was the, re, they, their ceremony was that seven-day feast. So he finished the feast, and then he got mad at his wife and abandoned Went back to his father's house. So Samson, in this chapter, and this is the paradox of the Samson story, because when you make movies or, or, or cartoons or storybooks about Samson, you got to try to figure out some way that he's the good guy. And, and so you turn, he's not the good guy. Everything he does in this chapter is completely antithetical to what Nazarites should be. Nazarites were supposed to be called, set apart by God. They're supposed to be devoted to the Lord. They're supposed to be strict in their discipline. They're supposed to be righteous in their actions. And Samson is none of those things. He's so Philistine in this chapter. He throws a Philistine drinking party. He eats unclean food. He goes into a vineyard. He uh, tries to enter into this pagan riddle competition that was popular then. When he loses it, then he kills people in order to pay off his debt. Nothing he does is praiseworthy. And so that's part of this Samson story that, that we have to grapple with is nothing that he does in this in and of itself is praiseworthy. Even when the Spirit of God comes upon him, he uses it to settle a personal debt. He doesn't use it to deliver his people. He doesn't rally the troops like all the other judges before him had done. When the Spirit of God comes on them, they rally the troops like Gideon, and then they go and they fight the oppressors. He doesn't do that at all. So everything about Samson, God is like doing everything for him that could be done, giving him far more than he deserves, and Samson is just completely squandering it, time after time after time. Just like Israel. <clears throat> Samson is little Israel, and he's embodying the country as a whole, because that's what Israel's done. God did everything for them so much, and yet time and time again, the entire theme of Judges is Israel turning away from God over and over and over. So we have to do this when we're reading the Samson story. We have to get out of our minds that he's a biblical superhero and get in our minds he is the thermometer or the thermostat of God's people's spiritual condition. You know, they say countries get leaders that they deserve. <laughs> Samson's a great example of that. He's just like his people at this point. Petuous, prone to lusting after foreign women, prone to uh, doing his own thing, ignoring God's commands, striking out against those who personally wrong him. Uh, he's entirely self-centered, entirely impetuous. All of these things. And the, the crazy thing is God is still going to use him to accomplish God's bigger purpose, to, or at least to begin to accomplish God's bigger purpose. David will be the one who finally puts it into the Philistine threat. Um, but God's starting to do it through Samson. So what's the application? What's the life lesson in the Samson story? Well, sometimes it's just God works with broken things. God works with brokenness in a broken world, and still his will in the long run will get accomplished. 
But that doesn't mean that the brokenness is a good thing. It doesn't mean that the rebellion is a good thing. God's going to do things through people who rebel, but not, therefore, baptizing or sanctifying their rebellion. So can you have faith that if you screw up, God can use it? Absolutely. He can work all things together for the good of those who love him. That's what God does. He takes our crap and turns it into gold. <laughs> he takes the things that we do that are terrible and turns them into good things for his people. But there is a price that gets paid for our rebellion, for our disobedience, for our sinfulness. Samson's not going to get off without being hurt. He's going to lose his family in this <laughs> chapter. He already did. The next chapter is really going to lose him permanently. He's going to lose his eyes, the very things that caused him to wander in the first place. And ultimately, he's going to lose his life and not really accomplish a ton of great stuff for God's people. But that's still all of that. It's like that's not going to catch God by surprise. God's still going to work in spite of that. So with us, you know, yeah, can we screw up God's plans? Not ultimately. No. But can we screw up our participation in the good stuff that God wants to happen? Absolutely we can. And we can put ourselves outside of God's best for us uh, through disobedience and rebellion. Or just laziness or inattentiveness or, or all the things Sam, that plague Samson's life. Distractions, all of that stuff. Um, so, we got to go. We're out of time. Uh, this is Samson and his women, part one. Next week, Samson and his women, part two. Uh, we're going to see themes that plague Samson's life in these chapters. But for now, we got to go. So, guys, have a great week, and we'll see you next week.